Okay, unbelievable. Uh, here we are with Russell Robinson, the head of Jewish National Fund. It's great to have you here, Russell. Thank you, David. I was just saying your name really does not sound Jewish. How do you explain that? Well, it really is a, a Jewish name. It was Robinson. It was a French name. We were the first Jewish fed settlers in Virginia in the 1790s. Uh, and there's a book, uh, The First Jews of Virginia, and my family's in there. Well, so you're, you're really not a dreamer. You're totally legit here. Legit, and we stayed Jewish all these generations. And how did you end up in El Paso, Texas? So El Paso, my mother was born there. My, uh, her brother was born in Germany. They got out, uh, and she was born in El Paso. My father was Canadian. Now, he came from, he was the first Robinson not to speak French, but his parents spoke French, and they opened up haberdashery stores in Canada, and after the war... Where in Canada? In Montreal and Quebec. I'm from Montreal. Oh, yeah? Oh, man. Robinson's upstairs, you know? Uh, it was a good commercial, except they're not in business, so... Oh, I'm going to uh, check it out. Right. My mother was a seamstress. So, and I even have a, Is he still alive? No, but I have a tree certificate from my father from Quebec, from his bar mitzvah, 1937. Oh, man. But uh, he came to El Paso because his godparents were in the liquidation business. They, he didn't want to be in the successful business of his parents, of course. And uh, it took him eight days to get to El Paso. And being a single guy, every Jewish mother in El Paso smelled him coming for <laughs> six of those days. And on the train station, they were all waiting and how long did it Thursday, take? Thursday, he was stuck. Literally, that's with it. your mother? That's it. That was a big day in your life. You yeah. would not be here today. If it wasn't for that train station. For that famous Thursday. <laughs> right. Yeah. I always think of that, these little things that happen in life, a little turn here or there and creates whole families. So you lucked out. I lucked out. I grew up in a town, a very small Jewish community, but you had to work hard to be Jewish. And you might be the only Jewish person, certainly the only one I've met, who uh, started a carpet cleaning business while you were in college. How the hell do you explain that, Russell? So I had to, first off, I had to pay for the college. So <laughs> uh, it, was a, it was a great um, uh, enterprise to start something that was going to be, that we had no equipment. So we used to, I used to roll papers as a kid. So I knew where roll to- Roll papers? Paper, be on paper routes. Okay. So I knew where they were being delivered. And you were now in uh, studying business at University in of Te El Paso. Uh, yeah, and, and University of Texas and University of Texas. And you were paying for your own tuition? My own tuition. And how much was it? Well, remember? I, I remember yeah. at one point that there was a, a semester, it was like $290. So And that's $290 you did not have? I did not have. So you started a carpet cleaning business. Started a carpet cleaning business, and it took off. And uh, It really did take off? Yeah, it took off. We sold it. It's not it. just to make you look good on the resume? No. Okay. It, uh, it took off uh, bigger than we thought it was going to be. And Seriously? And then you sold it? Sold it. I sold it to get into this business. Oh, the Jewish business. Uh, oh, yeah, it was yeah, an yeah. accident there as well, but uh, I don't think well, accidents happen. Things happen. I know. In your case... Your parents were inviting Israeli soldiers to your home for Shabbat, right? That's a good research, David. Yeah, and it's it's it kind of similar to my story because, uh, you know, one of my boys is in the Israeli army, and a lot of his nourishment of Zionism came from the guests we have on Shabbat from Israel. So right. it was a similar thing that seems to have been with you, right, growing well, up? Well, we uh, lived in El Paso. Fort Bliss was there. It was the largest army base in the country. In Israel, the Air Force does missile defense. In America, it is the Army. 
So we had Israeli Air Force people in El Paso studying missile defense. My father and mother were those kind of people. They had never been to Israel. They weren't religious, but uh, I'd come home at night uh, from school, and there was always people sleeping in sleeping bags outside, and we had a big uh, cinder block room. They used to go to Mexico to buy products and then bring them in before they would go back to Israel, so they had the 220 products. So there's the first Israelis you met. Yeah, and it's uh, I'll tell you a story because we're one of my great. I was... About 20 years ago, I was interviewing somebody in Miami, and I, here's the name Robinson. He said, you know, it's a very unusual Jewish name. And he says, I knew a Robinson once in El Paso. I said, well, that must have been us, because <laughs> El Paso and Robinson. He asked me for time to go home. He went home. He came back with a picture of him and a little boy with me that he had taken when he was in the Israeli Air Force. And oh, he had man. Thing, and... Here we are years later, and I have a picture of him and myself as a, a little boy, and he's in my home. Um, 20 years ago, is they offered you to take over, right, to head the Jewish National Fund, which is only 117 years old. What's it like to be offered to run this one of the greatest Jewish organizations of all time, global, venerable? I mean, it, it was daunting, intimidating, wasn't it? Well, it was an interesting story there as well. Like I said, stories happen. We love stories. Uh, I was going back to private business. I had, had it with the Jewish communal world. I didn't feel that it was mission-driven enough. I didn't feel it was accomplishing enough. It was my own issues. And uh, Ronald Lauder from Estee Lauder had become the president of the Jewish National Fund. I did not know him then. I did not apply for the job. I got a phone call from him. I used to have a friend. I have a friend who jokes all the time, Ben-Gurion calling, Bacon <laughs> calling. And I got a call that said, Ronald Lauder calling. I thought it was my friend. So I got on the phone and I said, I'll take 20 pounds of cold cream. <laughs> and I heard this booming voice said, okay. So who is this? He said, it's Ronald Lauder. So I said, really? And he said, I have, I want to get your advice. Uh-huh, I just took over Jewish National Fund. I want to get your advice. I said, Mr. Lauder, I'm more than happy to give advice. Uh, I don't know much about the organization. I knew Blue Boxes and Trees. I went to his office, and about an hour into the meeting, I kept asking him what was the advice. He said, listen, I've decided that you're going to be my CEO of Jewish National Fund. I said, Mr. Lauder, in all respect, I'm already negotiating another job, and uh, I don't know what you're really talking about. And it's a whole story that Ronald and I tell that he harassed me for four or five days. And, uh, and he I, wore you down. I made a decision that if there was somebody who was dreaming like this, somebody who was really thinking about tomorrow, then I wanted to be part of it. I made that decision 20 years ago, and I've never regretted it. So you said something a few minutes ago that caught my attention, which is some of the frustrations you had in the Jewish world. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I feel that when you have organizations, Jewish organizations, and today it's this, not in the Jewish National Fund, but I see it. If you're only driven by the um, uh, diagrams on a piece of paper and who's going to hold what positions, if you're only driven by where the different power centers are going to be, and you're not making the conversations every single day about what's going to happen in 25 years, mm -hmm. what's going to happen in 50, where are the decision points? Mm -hmm. We at Jewish National Fund, and I say this very, very proudly, when we make a decision, 
we're always asking ourselves, is this good for 25 years from now? Is it good for 50 years from now? I didn't see that. And I saw the Jewish world was only dealing with who was going to be power centers. Organizations are tools that should be tools to motivate our people and to drive the future. You know, there's a story, you and I are probably old enough to remember the, the Cars Datsun, remember? Yep. The famous Datsun that had a real yes. strong brand in North America. And I guess they decided to catch up with the rest of the world because they were called Nissan in the rest of the world. But in North America, they're called Datsun and they built a major brand. So they finally decided to make the move and a lot of marketing people were shocked that they would squander and throw away such a great brand equity in Datsun. And I'll never forget the interview with the head guy in Japan. And he said, you may be right for the next 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, but we think in 100 years, it'll be a good decision. Right. Well, so the decisions are, if we have children, you have children in the army, you have children that are, that are here, you have active people. We are having our children because we're hoping to perpetuate whatever we have built in our family, in our life, in our, in our name, in our community, in our, in our people. And what I don't see happening over and over is that people are thinking about their children and their children's children. Mm -hmm. And it is so important in this Jewish community. You know, we sort of operate in this Jewish community organizational world that the customer is always wrong. And not only are they wrong, we're going to keep producing what we want to produce, and we're going to yell at them for not buying. Well, guess what? The customer's right. Now, yes, we have to stay within a certain square of whatever we are for mission-driven, but let's listen to that generation. Let's plan tomorrow. I guess you're fortunate because you have your cause is so bipartisan, and we live in a world that's so partisan, Russell. It's like... Jews seem to be at each other's throats these days, more than usual, don't you find? Yeah, because we're not talking about Jew. We're talking about all the other things, and it's not fair. It's not fair to our history, and it's not fair to our future. Now, what do you think that is? Do you think because politics has entered too much of the conversation? Is it uh, as important as it is? You think? I mean, that's what I think. I think we, you know, we've allowed politics to sort of dominate our conversations, our consciousness, and I think we're fraying at the, our bonds are fraying because of that. I think you're, David, 100% correct. If you look back, democracy was never a great savior of the Jewish people. We, we had the voyage of the dam. We couldn't get senators and congressmen to allow a group of, of people coming in off of SS St. Louis to dock to the United States. There were stories about knowing that they could have bombed the railroad tracks in Auschwitz and saved millions of Jews, but we had no political power. We've worked so hard at that to fray it and to allow it to enter into the negativity. It's not right. But to enter into our Jewish peoplehood is also not right. Yeah, and, and you have an organization, you run an organization that sort of symbolizes, you know, the, the best part of Judaism, of the Jewish people, and the best part of Israel, correct? So it's, it, might, it probably comes naturally for you to take a positive take on things. Do you find that you're often in these situations where you try to bring positivity into the room? Uh, I, I think most of the world now knows that Israel had more, is the only country with more trees at the end of this last century than at the beginning. I think it's become one of the greatest things ever said about Israel. And you are leading that organization that is helping to do that. So it's a great opportunity to use it also as a tool to help build. And so the Jewish National Fund, we get to connect people to Israel and 
The story of that connection is greater than ever. The fastest growing part of our donor database is our 25 to 40 year olds. The fastest growing. What we're doing with young people, our organization is built on that very existence, that blue box was, think about it. People were putting, that's a major gift opportunity back then. The famous blue box. People were putting coins, taking food off of their plate Mm -hmm. for hope. They didn't have a podcast. They didn't have Facebook or or Twitter. They didn't have a fax machine. They had 2,000 years of nothing. It was one of the great icons of really modern Jewish history was that blue box. And a unifier of our Jewish people. And then it got replaced by the blue box of Tiffany's. That represents commercialism. No, it's well, still we're going to sue that was a bad Tiffany. Joke. You know, yeah. no, but uh, no. <laughs> you know, but, by the way, <laughs> Tiffany made a blue box for us once. Oh, they did. Yes. Uh, so I was at a Tubishvat event on Sunday. This friend of mine that owns this huge avocado farm up near Santa Barbara, and at some point he gave this amazing class, interactive discussion with kids on trees, and he he spoke about trees and how they communicate with each other. And how they help each other is almost he made a, a, a connection between trees and communities. And it was utterly fascinating to hear that. Well, think about that discussion. What other people, David, what other people <laughs> have a new year for the earth? You know, I told a group of green Zionists once in a convention that I spoke at that if you celebrate Earth Day, you're being anti-Jewish. Now, I was doing that to obviously get a, a little bit of a, of a conversation going. But what do I mean by that? Our young people should know how cool we are. <laughs> we have a new year for our soul, and we mm. have a new year for the earth. And that you went to a two-bishvat program talking about trees and the, the, the opportunity for the roots to start drawing from the very drops of water and the growth. That is like, Wow. And yeah. we should tell that story more to our young people. In fact, he, uh, he used the phrase from Abraham Joshua Heschel, radical amazement. Ah, that's, that's what should mean uh, to be Jewish. But I was listening to uh, Mary Soloveitchik uh, the other day, and he was speaking how Tu Bishvat is really was a fiscal cutoff during biblical days. And then a few s- to, to represent the tithing of the field for the, for the farmers. And then 400 years ago in Tzfat, the mystics took it on as a place to commemorate the power and the beauty of the land in Israel, uh, the, the, the holy land. So it's, it's very much it's the holiday for your organization, right. Jewish National Fund. And, and he said, you know, and, and he says the, 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 the fact that we've made it global environmental kind of thing, he says that's not specifically what Tu Bishvat should be. He said the, the connection with nature really is Shabbat, mm-hmm. which reconnects us with uh, uh, nature, and then Rosh Hashanah is like sort of the new year. But he really made a point to speak about Tu Bishvat as commemorating the land in Israel, you know, Russell. And, you know, that land of Israel has been our connection. What other people have a land as part of their existence? Lech Lecha, go forward to a new land. Now, that connects us. Before, by the way, Shabbat was before that. Right. And then Lech Lecha was before circumcision, kashrut, anything else. So Israel is an important part of our narrative. It's part of our soul. That land of Israel is the soul and the soil of the Jewish people. And what we do there with Jewish National Fund is not only connect you, but allow you to continue 
to build onto that land, to develop that land. And that's what we're doing in the Negev and the Galil, and we continue to do it every day, and more and more people are joining us. One of the things I always find interesting is how, you know, we spent 18 centuries really being, what, people of the book, and we're tradesmen, and moneylenders, and whatever jobs we can do wherever we're living, whether it's my ancestors in Morocco or your ancestors in El Paso, uh, wherever we were for 18 centuries, believe me, the great the majority of Jews were not farmers. We didn't have our own land. We weren't toiling. And I, I just find one of the greatest parts of Jewish history is how we put on another hat when we had to. So we became farmers again when Israel came. And how does that happen? How do you transform a people into farmers? Not to mention, we had to become an army to defend ourselves. And we were not prepared, Russell, for those 18 centuries to toil the land and to set up an army. Is that part of the great Jewish miracle? I look at it's part of the great Jewish miracle and Jewish heroes. I take people down to the Arava, below the Dead Sea in Eilat. That land, when we go there, I always tell people, look out to your right. See the desert. Now don't look to your left yet. And then I have them look to their left and they see green green in a place that the same across the street was nothing but rock. Those are heroes. They didn't hold on to that land for the Jewish people with a Merkava tank. They didn't hold on to it with an F-16. You know how they held on to it, David? They planted pamelas <laughs> and dates and figs and peppers. Those are the heroes of the Jewish people. Those are the heroes that didn't know from farming and know who could grow in a place that only has two inches of rain per year and it comes all in one day. But that's the Jewish National Fund story. That's the story of the people of Israel. That's the Jewish people story. Now, do you, how do you deal with controversial subjects when they come up? Let's say you have, you know, you go on a trip and people say, well, how about Judea and Samaria? How about the West Bank? Do you plant trees over there? And I mean, it's so controversial. It's like the... I call it the elephant in the room that colors every conversation. What's your connection with that? So first, we work in the Negev and Galil. The Negev is 60% of the land of Israel, 60. The Galil is 17% of the land of Israel. It's two parts of Israel that have been forgotten, but not forgotten by us. Mm -hmm. And I answer questions very clearly. American Heart Association does work for the heart. American Cancer Society does work for cancer. Mm. It's all part of the body. Mm. But it doesn't mean that American Heart Association should raise money for American Cancer Society. Mm. But the whole body is being saved by all of those mm. groups. And Jewish National Fund in the Negev and the Galil, 60% and 17%. I don't have to enter into the controversy in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and Haifa, but we are focused on the great frontiers. Do you do any activity in uh, the West Bank? So we do work in Gush Etzion, for instance, but mm -hmm. Gush Etzion is a question that you should, people should know the history. In the mayor's office in Gush Etzion, there's a map of Jewish land ownership. It was done by the King of Jordan because the King of Jordan wanted to see, to make sure legally what was available in Gush Etzion, 80% was owned by Jewish owners. Mm. So did we work with historical site in Gush Etzion? Of course, because it told the story, the valiant uh, battle that happened there and the loss of lives, but it, the story of the people who came back, the children, grandchildren, to develop the land. Did we build a promenade for three boys that were murdered? 
Mm-hmm. Yes. But our majority of our work is in the Negev Galil, not as against anything, but it's for a major part of the land of Israel. Now, do you think um, there's there's discussion on how many people can Israel hold? And I read a piece recently that, you know, there's a limit and it might become overpopulated and we don't have enough infrastructure and, and water and all that kind of stuff. What's your take on that? So when we started with the uh, <clears throat> Negev, Ronald Lauder, one of the things he was dreaming, he said, listen, Israel's facing a water catastrophe. Catastrophe. Israel's running out of water. Now, if you take history, any, any uh, civilization that faced a catastrophe of water moved. We had no choice. So I told Mr. Lauder at the time, Ronald, let me tell you, I, don't, I know water comes from the tap. <laughs> and I knew that to raise money, in America, we had to raise money for recycled water, sewage water. And people said to me, David, can't be done. American philanthropy, Jews, they give to poverty, they give to war, they give to blood, they give to army. They're not going to give to sewage water. $300 million later, 250 reservoirs later, 14% of the water in Israel that is reused, 90% of the water is reused, 14% availability. That's the same as 3.5 million Israelis getting water every single year. That's because of Jewish National Fund and American sophisticated philanthropy. What that proved, though, for the Negev is that where populations go, you have water. You have recycled water. So we have moved people to Beersheba, and Beersheba is now the fastest-growing city in Israel. It's 240,000. It's going to be 500,000 people within 10 years. You have in the in the Arava, we were when we started with seven thousand, it's gonna be fourteen thousand. It has room for seventy five, a hundred thousand. You have Yoraham and Seirot in the Gaza envelope, you have up in the Galil. I will tell you, it won't be in my lifetime or my children's lifetime or great grandchildren's lifetime that we'll run out of space. Shall that be our biggest problem? You know, I was driving with a kid a few years ago to Israel. And, you know, I've been telling him for years, a tiny, tiny, tiny state, right? Israel, you look on the map, a tiny, like smaller than a postage stamp. And then my kid, you know, innocent kids, we're driving for hours. And she says, what are you talking about tiny, daddy? <laughs> Where's the tiny part? Right. This is huge, right? There's room for like 100,000 backyards. And look at what's happened. The biggest aliyah to Israel today over the past 10 years is Americans. And it's not American seniors, nothing against seniors. It's American young people. It's lone soldiers that aren't going to Israel to battle for the country to save it. They're going because they love the country of Israel. Now, you know, I was in uh, Beersheba. My my nephew was uh, going to med school there. I'm always throwing in family plugs. And we went to some Bedouin villages. Do you have a relationship with the Bedouins? I mean, they've been sort of in the middle of so much controversy. So the Bedouin situation is uh, one in which we've dealt with and we and I you know personally tell you that people have to deal. There's 190,000 to 200,000 Bedouins in the Negev. Now, just to give you statistics, these are the statistics I told you, Beersheva is 240,000. Outside of Beersheva, the whole Jewish population is 200,000. Now, Bedouins are having a lot of children per father. Mhm. Not because it's ideology, by the way. It's economics. Mm-hmm. 
So we started a project called Project Wadi Atir, the largest Bedouin project in Israel. Project what? Wadi Atir. Wadi Atir. And Wadi Atir does a lot of things economically, sociologically, environmentally, and economically. And it brings opportunities. And we're now in Project Wadi Atir producing yogurt that's being sold in, in, in shops throughout Israel, producing medicines, it's homeopathic medicines, utilizing Bedouin uh, you know, uh, uh, systems from the past. We're producing cosmetics from desert plants. Now, these are boutique industries, but for the Bedouins, it's an economic opportunity and a sociological and, and uh, uh, um, environmental. And we're now influencing about 10,000 Bedouins, and it gives them opportunity jobs which, by the way, decreases the population because then they understand that education and the, by the way, CEO of our project is a 29-year-old Bedouin woman. So you're talking about people on the payroll of JNF. No, these are people at Priorial Wadi Atir, but it's one of our partners. What we do at JNF USA is we work with a, a whole uh, a menagerie of partnerships in Israel. Mm. We don't believe that you have to create your own self. I don't mm. feel like I have to be the CEO of 10 million people. I have to be the CEO of doing the right job with the philanthropic dollars. So you find the right organization. Find the organizations, mm -hmm. fund them, mm -hmm. have them work with you. By the way, have them work with each other. So when we work in disabilities, we have um, uh, Ale Negev, one of the finest places on the face of the earth for people with mental disabilities. It's a village. Every square inch is part of the life. What's it called? Wadi, uh, um, uh, Ale Negev. Mm-hmm. But you know why we're involved? When it's finished with its new rehabilitation hospital, 2,700 jobs, 500 doctor-nurse-level jobs in a town called Ofakim. Mm. You know, it's funny. I hear you talk, and I'm thinking most people think Jewish National Fund is planting trees. You've gone way beyond that. Well, it's always been way beyond. I always said when I came to JNF, we were in a contest with the Mossad, and we won um, in silence and secret. But... <laughs> We're involved in making the water availability, the Negev communities, the Galilee. We're creating uh, change throughout Israel, throughout the Negev and the Galilee, up in the western Galilee, the Akko area. 600,000 people. We opened up a visitor center in Akko. They have 2 million visitors that were spending less than four hours. Our visitor center is changing that economics. We have a chamber of commerce with 60... Israeli small companies from the Western Galil who each pay 350 shekels a month dues. So it's philanthropy partnership. It's not philanthropy big brother. How often do you go to Israel? Every month. Seriously? To Seriously. check in on everything? Check in. We're building uh, major projects, small projects, partnerships. It's part of my commitment to making sure that every single uh, dollar that's donated is utilized in the best way. You know, uh, it's amazing when I... Uh, I hear you speak and all these challenges. I'm thinking, do you ever come across a problem that's really, really difficult to solve and you rack your brains and it keeps you up at night? I mean, w w give me an example of one that you have not solved yet. and Because you, you, you've given me only success stories. So well, I look, there's always a – the great thing about philanthropy, I believe, is that you're allowed to fail. You're not allowed to plan on failure. Oh, okay. You should plan on success, but even businesses fail. Sure. You take, we talked about cancer research, 98% could be failure for that 2%. 
So we've done projects and we've done work that hasn't really worked out. We have a project in the in the Arava. I'm telling you, it's one of the ones I even use now as an example to our lay leaders. We did everything right. We did a business plan. We knew what we. It just didn't quite work out, and we're gonna. What was the? It's a project goal? in a kibbutz Yahel. It was gonna be an economic generation project. Uh, it just didn't work out, mm-hmm. and you know what? We're retooling, and we're gonna regenerate, and it's kept me up at night as well. But what I do know is that I get to utilize also the brain power of my volunteers. It's one of the great systems if you use it. They get to give me a lot of money, and I figured they woke up in the morning and figured it out. Who am I not to utilize their talents? So when we have a housing industry problem in Israel, houses, everybody's talking houses, can't build houses. We sat down with our volunteers and we came up with a creative solution for the Negev and Galil. We've done over 1,100 housing sites. Give me an example. What is that creative solution? So take a small town, Yerucham. Doesn't matter where it is. The way it works in the government is centralized planning. They plan 100 housing sites. The town, the kibbutz, they have to come up with the infrastructure. It's about $70,000 a lot. Then when they sell it and you start constructing your home, you repay that infrastructure. But for a little town or moshav or, or kibbutz, they can't afford $7 million. They usually are, can't afford a dollar. We came in and we put together a housing uh, revolving fund loan program where we have donors who've already raised over $15 million and we keep raising more, that we go in and we start building the infrastructure from day one. We're taking the Zionist risk. So imagine 50 houses in Nachaloz, a place that's five minutes from Gaza. Do you personally roll up your sleeve and get into the weeds? Just like, because I often use the example of Steve Jobs. People always think, you know, big time CEO. He spent most of his time in the kitchen. I'm in the the kitchen. Are you? Because I love the kitchen. (laughs) I got to tell you, if you're not in the kitchen, you're not the CEO. And uh, I could give you exactly where our housing sites are. I could tell you how when we built the Stay Road Indoor Playground, 23,000 square feet of fun that has 25-gauge steel, 300 tons. Uh Uh-huh. Nice. I'm getting to know you better, Russell. Uh, do you use Skype and Zoom, and you probably have all kinds of meetings, right? Yeah, we built a, when we built the indoor playground, my father was uh, very sick, so I wasn't able to go to Israel all the time during construction. And I always said that that construction of that indoor playground was done a lot on Skype. Mm, did you tell your father what you were doing? So it's a great story as well. My father, when he passed away, I found a tree certificate in the bottom of his drawer. A tree certificate I told you from 1937. It's it's hanging in my office. He never told me he owned it. That's from his bar mitzvah. He was a non-religious man. He had lived, David, in nine different places. And he knew you were with Jewish National Fund. Yes. Why did he keep that certificate? I don't know. Or I do know. You found it after he passed away? After he passed away. Mm-hmm. Well, I could see why it'd be in, uh, in your office. So when you're back in the States and you're not in Israel, what takes up most of your time besides, obviously, fundraising? Listen, it's fundraising, but it's traveling across the country and meeting people and engaging them, giving them an opportunity to join us and us an opportunity to welcome them. It's, like I said, our Jaina future, our 25 to 40-year-olds. I love speaking. I go to college campuses. My rule in my office is if a college campus calls me to speak. Never say no. Never say no. Mm-hmm. The college kids are the best, they're the brightest. We opened up American High School in Israel. We took it over five and a half years ago, the Alexander Muss High School in Israel. It's a semester abroad experience. My daughter went there. 
Mm-hmm. So 800 students were going there five and a half years ago. It's now 1,500. We're now talking about 5,000 high school kids. You want to hear a problem, David? You take 25 years of our American experience. 25 years ago, almost 26,000 teenagers were going to travel programs to Israel over three weeks. Today, it's down to over 30, less than 3,500. So if I'm looking at the Jewish body, and I'm saying that there may be a crisis happening, so you want to take the blood test and find out, and you find out that in teenage years, if we're not taking our, allowing our teenagers to go on long-term programs, three, four weeks or more, we don't have a future. It's the most impressionable moment of their life. You know, it's interesting. I speak to so many Jewish leaders, and it invariably comes down to the crises that we hear all the time. For example, uh, BDS, the BDS movement on college campuses, and, and how do we fight that, and how do we get the truth out, and how do we arm our kids to be able to combat BDS and all those good things, right? And and yet with you, it doesn't even come up. No. I mean, so when you go on campuses, does that come up? No, I got to tell you, there's greatness out there. There's greatness out there. You should see from our high school kids at Muss High School when we go there, and these are a lot of them, kids who went to public and private schools. That means we're giving them their academic experience in Israel. That's for the parents. Right. For us, we return them loving, living, and being part of Israel. College campuses, I just had a group in my office. We had a focus group with 25 college kids. They're unbelievable. If you want to talk about the power of our Jewish community, go talk to the young people. Right, but how about the other side of the story that tells us that the brand of Israel is being really hurt uh, because of this anti-Israel movement that has really, uh, you know, undermined the name of the, the brand of Israel as a colonialist and oppressor and occupier and all those things that are relentlessly promulgated on college campuses, especially you see an, uh, an op-ed uh, a week ago in the uh, New York Times by Michelle Alexander, who's a human rights activist, on it's time we end the silence on Palestine. This is the one great injustice of, of our time. And I mean, that's out in the media, Russell. And David, we're allowing that influence? discussion to be the discussion. Mm. You know what I like to discuss on a college campus? The relevant issues. You know what are relevant to, my college, to those college kids? It's an African farmer. An African farmer that's bringing food under their plate because of a water technology created in a place called Israel. Israel makes the world a better place. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about uh, the relevant issues? Go down to the Arava, where 3,500 students are getting 22 college credit hours from Southeast Asia. It's, so there's two levels of action. You're talking about real action, which is great, my favorite. And then there's the other kind of action, which is to go and scream and demonstrate. So you have these, these new Jews called, you know, if not now, and we hear about them all the time. And their definition of action is not to plant the tree in Uganda, but to demonstrate in front of the ADL offices um, and to create all these protests, these public protests. And this is part of this new movement where screaming and protesting and shouting and demonstrating is like sort of the action that people take. And your action is totally different. Is you go and you plant trees and you really make the... It's, it's incredible how concrete your organization is. David, there's so many times when I say that um, 
a lot of those protesters should send us thank you notes for sometimes making them famous because I get protested. And so you, you know, do? We, we got our security thing. They say, you're not protesters. And where, like, where do you get protested? Uh, you know, uh, if not now, when love's protesting me. And, uh, Why would they protest you? Uh, because they make claims that, uh, you know, an Arab was kicked out of their home. Mm. So I said, you're protesting the Jewish National Fund. Would you protest the Goodwill Industries? I, I'm just asking because I'm a nonprofit. There's laws in Israel. So if you're telling me that the Jewish National Fund bulldozed a home, call the police. It's against the law. Well, that sounds too much like sense. Mm-hmm. So would the Goodwill industry be able to bulldoze a home in Los Angeles? No. So there's sometimes the ridiculous statements that we allow that foolishness to be part of the discussion. Mm-hmm. I don't allow it. The foolishness is not allowed part of our discussion. Our discussion is to talk about how great we are as a Jewish people and how Israel has made the world a better place. And you want to talk about the greatness and human rights? By the way, there's issues in my family. But who am I to start off the conversation and tell you, hey, my Aunt Ethel, you know, she had an accident with the car and ran over. T- no, I'm going to tell you how great my children are, my wife and my family. Let's stand up as a Jewish people and start talking about the greatness of our family. You want to get to know my family? You'll get to know all the blemishes. But get to know me before you start talking about my blemishes. And, I mean, this is your instrument. This is the instrument that you play. And from what I understand, you're introducing culture to in, in what you do. You're, you're a great person in L.A. was telling me about this, that uh, music and culture is now entering the, the picture, isn't it? If you are going to create change in the Negev and the Galil and communities in Akko and in Shlomi up by the Lebanon board in Kirat Shimona, you have to give a family medical services, which is why we built three medical centers and building another one. You have to provide leadership development for the young people. You've got about housing sites. You, but you have to provide culture and, and, and opportunity for a young family to say, this is where I want to live. And we're doing that, and we're doing that up in the Kiryat Shimona area. This is sort of like on its, uh, I'm giving you the, the firsthand view of it. In Kiryat Shimona, a wonderful place with great neighborhood called Lebanon in Syria. <laughs> a place that has lost population. We're opening a food technology and innovation center. We just bought the building. It's going to take four research centers, bringing them together. That we're helping farmers. We're working with venture capitalists and 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 having them bring Nestle and other companies to come there to do research and development in food security. A medical center, and then we're going to build the Cordon Bleu. We're building a four-year culinary institute that's going to take the beauty of Israeli cuisine, and you're going to learn in the back of the house and the front of the house, and it's going to be the only one Where is this? up in Kiryat Shimona. Oh, I have to visit that one. So in five years, start booking a reservation for the <laughs> restaurants in Kiryat Shimona. We're going to change that's it to a nice the culinary scoop. capital of the world. Oh, man. Um, so I want to discuss uh, the relationship between the Jews of America and the Jews of Israel. It's becoming, uh, I mean, you and I have been in the community now for so long, and we've both been to GAs and APAC conventions, and we've heard all the, all the panels and all the discussions. So we've seen this relationship evolve over the years, and it seems to be reaching a little bit of a breaking point right now, like a little uh, crisis point. 
maybe it, it was that piece by Weissman in the New York Times on the schism between the Jews of America and the Jews of Israel. And obviously we know there were conflicts with the, the wall egalitarian section and the chief rabbin and conversions and all kinds of stuff. What's your take on the relationship right now? How bad do you think it is and what's the prognostic for the future? First, I don't believe it's that bad. I told you that in the biggest aliyah to Israel is North Americans have been making aliyah. Mm. It's young people. It's my daughter, 26 years old, living in Tel Aviv. And by the way, it's not her. It's a lot of 26 and 27 and 28-year-olds who are not going to Israel. And I'm not using Yerushalayim because I'm using Tel Aviv for a point. They're going there because it's a great place to live. Second, you've got to have a little understanding of history. Theodore Herzl never came to America. It wasn't even part of his thought process for Zionism. It was to save the Jews of Europe. America was a holding place for Jews to come. It never added to the equation. We never thought America would be what it has become. Remember, I think it was uh, um, uh, Look Magazine did an article in 1968 called The Diminishing Jew, and they predicted with all the demographic, uh, you know, scientists, that the Jews would be two million Jews by night by the year 2020, Orthodox Judaism would be dead, that conservative Judaism would be the only Judaism in America, and it would be a small reform group. Well, look, magazines out of business, and we're 8.5 million Jews. I want to find out the author of that article. Okay. Diminishing Jew. Right. Now you you you're in contact with heads of other Jewish groups, uh, the Reform Movement, the conservative, a lot of these years, like Rick Jacobs and, and so many who are complaining uh, about the relationship and who are, you know, sending an alarm. And what can we do to make things better? I mean, one of the things is to, I was having lunch with Richard Sandler the other day, and he, he made a great point. He said, sometimes you just have to accept that things are what they are. You know, that people, he said, you know, every kid I have is different, and that's okay. So we have differences between Israel and America, and that's okay. Now let's talk about how we can make things better, right? There's a sense that we have to accept our differences. The fact that 80% of the population there is Jewish, and here it's 2%, how could it not be different? It's different, and you've got to also remember that in that difference, in the difference, is that we see worlds in different ways. And in seeing the worlds in different ways, remember that we were raised here in America, Jewish organizations, for years. We loved good war. Okay? 67 was a great war. 73 was a great war. Then all of a sudden, wars became on CNN. Mm. And we didn't like it. It's not good for fundraising. By the way, how dare you, Israel, become successful? We're raising money on orphans and poverty. And we need to serve pizzas to our soldiers. I, you, I think about that. Why? Because they're not eating? They're in Biafra? Well, that's how we were raised. So we raised on social, you know, kids at risk. I always said, you talk about some communities. I used to go around and they'd talk about the kids at risk. I said, you know, the way you're talking, the whole town is at risk. Guess what? Aren't there good people? So Jewish National Fund, first off, you've got to start talking to the people. And it's about partnership. And if we're not going to be able to have that conversation because we're only thinking about our fundraising methodologies and Israel has to be poor and needy, guess what? I say it on every speech. Israel's existence is not in question. There is no exiles anywhere in the world. It hasn't been that way since the second temple destruction. 
So we have to have a new narrative here, a new partnership. Now it's the toughest moment for us because guess what? Needy, I could deal with. I got to deal with you on a partnership level as a real eye-to-eye relationship. Come with us, David. Come with anybody to a JNF mission. Go meet that I'll introduce you to the 32-year-old mayor of Kiryat Shimona or Ruvik Donalovich, the mayor who just won by 94% of Beersheba, who took our river walk and has been our partner walking with us every single day, or the mayor of Mitzperomon, who is a secular Jew who walked with his twin kids from Mitzperomon to Yerushalayim to, to Davin at the wall because he wanted them to know the understanding of the Jewish people. Now, that's a partnership. It's a tough sell, but it's a great sell. You're all the way at the end of the spectrum of, you know, people who talk about divorce. I was lunching with another leader recently, and, and I said to him, he said, you know, this this talk that American Jews are divorcing Israeli Jews because they see things so differently, and they're so wide apart. And he looked at me and said, who are you going to divorce? Right. Six and a half million Jews. Who are you going to divorce? You're going to divorce the, the Eged bus driver in Dimona? That's right. We, it's it's it, our it, people. The point he was making is that Israel is not just its government. Israel is all the diversity and the people that you're talking about. Look, government is democracy, and democracy, as Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Right. We are also the apex, so to speak, for the Negev Galil. In a democracy, who cares about Yerucham? In a democracy, who cares about the Arava? I'm going to be running for Knesset. I'm going to schlep for two hours down to the Arava to get, what, 200 votes? Mm-hmm. 20 votes? I'll have an apartment building meeting in Tel Aviv. So who speaks for them? Who speaks with them? Who walks with them side by side? We get to. We get to be part of a nation still under creation. And it's so exciting to be a 21st century Pioneer. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're the opposite of so many organizations that are so focused on branding and social media and information and education. You're really, I mean, literally rolling up your sleeves into the ground. I mean, this is what this is the soul of your organization. And David, come meet my lay people. Come meet my volunteers. They could sit here today. Ronald Lauder to a 25-year-old model of my JNF future. And you could talk to them about what I'm talking to you, and they know the facts because they live it. Does it ever uh, come where you'll, you'll meet somebody here in America and say, wow, we have this incredible problem. Maybe you can help us. And sharing of technology, of know-how, of ideas. Does All that come the time. Up? And we're now, everything we're doing. Because that's really not your mission, right? Your mission is really strictly Israel. It's Israel, but it's all about connecting people to Israel as well. So we always have people coming and talking about what is the best way to connect the kids? What's the best way to connect the teenagers? How do you get college kids? How do you communicate? And how, you know, so apps and connectors and Facebook, it's also a conversation piece allowing us to have Israelis, not the intellectual, not from the government, Don't go to Israel to go meet with the Knesset members only. Right, but if the mayor of Fresno calls you one day and said, man, I got real problems here with our water shortage and drought, and I hear you guys have some amazing technology, can we meet? So we've done it. You have? We've done it here in California where we brought and introduced them to a lot of different people because we have dealt with the issues. And so when in that that issue, there's a great book on water called uh, Let There Be Water by Seth Siegel. Read it, and you could talk about... Israel making a difference for itself, but also a difference in the world. 
Now, speaking of the world, you have 400 million people all around Israel. They all have to drink, whether they hate Jews or not. They get thirsty. And as much as oil has been the great liquid of the last century, it looks like water is going to be the great liquid of this coming century. If you don't take care of the water problem, the great wars of the West were over water. Do you ever uh, put in situation where you have to engage with Arab neighbors who need some of your know-how and technology? Is this done covertly? Can you talk about that? There's conversations. Listen, you, you borders know that when the drop of water comes from the sky— it doesn't know from Israel and uh, Palestinian right. Authority, Jordan and Lebanon. It only knows that it's coming down. Sewage water comes from the tops of the mountains down the stream into the Mediterranean. Uh, issues of natural resources, and, you know, we work with the Arva Institute, and they always say the environment knows no borders. Mm -hmm. So with that, there's always have to be conversations, and there's always work. And by the way, I've said it in some meetings that I've been at, Sometimes I've been, you be very honest, it's self-serving. It's good for us to help you. Mm -hmm. I, let's say well, I don't care about you. You've had meetings with? We've had meetings where I've said it doesn't, uh, that we're doing it for as much self-service purposes. You, you've had meetings where they serve you tea with a lot of sugar? There's <laughs> coffee with a lot of sugar, too. Okay. <laughs> so uh, my last thing I want to talk about is you made a big deal about looking at things, you know, 20, 25 uh, years down the road. What's your vision for Jewish National Fund and for Israel 20, 25 years down the road? So we're right now looking at uh, building the feasibility plan of building a Zionist Jewish educational village in Beersheba, one that will be 5,000 teenagers per year coming to Israel on a academic and long-term programs, an apartment complex for college kids, not for uh, internship for three months, when they're finished their bachelor's or their master's to going and working in the high-tech and the cybersecurity businesses at Tel Aviv for a year, interning. Don't go to China. Go to Israel. To have an adult education center so that teachers and, and adults can go for weekends, for weeks, for two weeks, elder hostels. The connector, the connector between us and the people of Israel, it's going to be about Hebrew. It's going to be about shared values. And it's going to be about relationships that are not of the governmental type. It's relationships of the people I talked about, the people that are living in Gaza, uh, the Gaza corridor, um, uh, the people that are living in Sterot, people who are living in Yoracham and the Arava. When I could take you and introduce you to Michal Uziazu, who lives five minutes from the Gaza border, and I know her children, and I know her family, and I eaten at their home, and she's it in my home, and she calls my daughter, that is the Jewish world tomorrow. It seems to me that this next century for you is going to be about uh, human trees, about trees of life. The little blue box is now really homes. So you're really putting such a focus on human life. Human life was all about, think about it, uh, 2,000 years we did not have a land of Israel. The Jewish National Fund went out to repurchase that land, repurchase for the Jewish people everywhere. If we would have been a little more unified, a little stronger, a little faster, could we have had more ownership of that land in 1939? Probably. I don't want that question ever to be asked of today. Mm. Mm. And and this, this idea of life it seems to really enlighten you and, you know, electrify you. 
It engages me. Yeah. My children, I believe, are better than me. I, I'll tell you a story. There was a man named Shalom Dror. He was uh, the commander of the brigade who called for the retreat of Yerushalayim from Notre Dame, 1948. His son was killed in 1967, taking the old city. So I asked Shalom, and he was very involved in Ammunition Hill. It's one of our projects as well. If you haven't been, you have to go see what we've done to, to give really life to a place of memorial. And I said, Shalom, how do you deal with that? Those two decisions. He said, you know what, Russell, I always had in life, could I have waited 30 seconds, one more minute, another week? And could we have saved Yerushalayim for all of us? The next generation was better than mine. I gave you Israel. My son gave you unified Yerushalayim. Tell the next generation and the next generation to be better than the one before, the same way that my son is, was, the same way that you are, the same way that your children are better than you. And if you believe that your children are better than you, and I do, then I believe that I got to leave it strong and that they'll carry it forward. Yeah, my brother once told me, he says, don't just teach your children, teach your children to teach their children. Beautiful. You know, um, I'd love to be a fly in the, in, the, in the room on the wall when you're in a meeting with somebody like the head of the Jewish agency, Herzog, or the head of Birthright. Give me an idea of what kind of conversation you have with him, because obviously some of your missions overlap. So my conversations with everybody, David, is always about how to work together and how to do things for the Jewish people. If we're only worried about the borders of our organizations, guess what? Uh, you could build a nice little place for the ca casket. Our organizations have to be, what are we built for? So you do a lot of that, correct? We like it, always are working the, together and trying to build that unity of the Jewish people. Well, it looks like uh, Mr. Lauder made the right decision 20 years ago So when he asked for your advice. You know, uh, we always have an ongoing joke, and, uh, and I've, I've thanked him, and uh, I will tell you, I made a decision. I didn't know if it was the right one for maybe a couple of days, but I've never regretted it. Well, it looks like it's been really good for the Jews, and here's to another 20 years. Russell, and thank you very much for coming into the Jewish Journal offices. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>